Hey, this is Tony, and we're less than one week out from the start of the Social Entrepreneur six-week quick start, and I'm starting to get some questions, so I thought I'd take less than one minute to answer them. So first of all, yes, it is a six-week course, but the time commitment is just a little bit more than one hour per week. So we're going to have one half-hour kickoff session on Monday, July 12th at 10 a.m., but then the regular live sessions start on Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m., starting on July 13th, and that's going to last for six weeks. So it'll be a one-hour live session every Tuesday morning. And yes, it will be recorded if you're not able to make that time slot. Now, there will be challenges each week, but each challenge should take you around 15 minutes to complete. So if you want to learn more, head over to cultureshift.com. Now, let's get to the show. But when I started to meet with more chefs in the real estate work I was doing, I started to talk to more who were sourcing directly from farmers. And I started to really see the different type of agriculture that exists from these smaller scale farmers the direct sourcing and the impact that can happen buying from these farms. But when I would speak to all the farmers, none of them had access to capital. Welcome to Social Entrepreneur. My name is Tony Lloyd. I'm a former Fortune 500 executive, but today I spend my time with changemakers who are making an impact in the world. We hear exciting stories of ordinary people just like you who are making a difference. They share their successes, their failures, and what they're learning along the way. Thanks for being with me today. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome back to Social Entrepreneur. And today's guest, Dan Miller of Steward. Regenerative farming is becoming increasingly popular because of the environmental impact, because of the carbon impact, because of the great foods that are produced on small and medium farms. And the demand for regenerative products is surging but there's a problem. The problem is that the agricultural financial systems were not built to support regenerative farms. So that's where Steward comes in. Steward is a community of borrowers and lenders who support regenerative farming. So here he is to tell the story, Dan Miller of Steward. I am Dan Miller, the founder of Steward. Steward's a platform that provides funding to regenerative agriculture. For people who don't know this phrase, regenerative agriculture, talk about that. It's the journey began with sustainable agriculture, organic agriculture. There's been many terms for it, but it's the idea of focusing on soil health and soil fertility first, on recycling nutrients and taking care of the land as a way to produce good food or good products. So it's really a form of agriculture that is ecology first, product first. And, and kind of volume and business second, not to say that it's not viable business, but it's focusing on health of the land as paramount. And it kind of goes with your name, being a good steward of the land, doesn't it? And that's the, the concept. It's about thinking beyond one's generation and beyond a short period of view of really taking care of a resource and feeling the, the bound to it. I think many historic and indigenous cultures, that was the obvious. And I think with our current culture, we've been disconnected from many of the resources that we live upon. So it's interesting, like there's three three components working here, right? There's the regenerative farmers, so often smallholder farmers in North America. You have lenders over here on the other side, and then you have your platform. So talk to me about if I'm one of the regenerative farmers, what do I find when I go to your website? 
Yeah, so that's where it began. That was kind of the journey with, with regenerative farmers is most of these farmers, small to mid-size, growing non-commodity. And so the current financial system is very much built for large-scale commodity agriculture, large soy, corn, you know, grain farms. So if you're one of these smaller producers selling at a farmer's market, selling to uh, a well-known chef, you don't have really outlets for capital. So they come to us, they're first surprised that we exist, that there is a uh, financial service that is focused purely on them as a customer. That's always a surprise. And then they submit an application. They speak with our team. Uh, we have a team member that works them through the funding process. We have a in-house team member who's a farmer himself who helps speak with them about their actual business plans. So it, it really is about helping them think about what funding do they need? What's the right amount? What's the right structure? What are the improvements that they could immediately make to help grow their business? For these types of farms, they've been undercapitalized so long that it's very simple pieces of equipment and tools and operational capital and land. It's not complicated at all what they need. It's things they've needed for years. They just have not had the access to capital to do so. So traditionally, these large commodity farmers, they go see their banker once or twice a year and they go, hey, this year we brought in X amount of soybeans. We sold it at this price. That's the commodity price. We made this much money. We think we're going to plant this many acres this year and we need another loan to carry us through to the next thing. These specialized, regenerative, small to medium-sized farms, they don't have the same access then, right? And, and that really defines how the system is built. You know, the system is designed for large-scale commodity production, export-oriented, or at least large-volume sales. And that is mainly because of government policies. The government policy focuses on that form of agriculture. It subsidizes the capital that goes to that form of agriculture through bank programs, through direct loans. It subsidizes the pricing. It subsidizes everything. So all it does is drive every farmer pretty much to that path, which is growing commodities selling at the global Chicago board trade market price. Very easy to underwrite because as you said, acres pricing. Ultimately, that business has not been great recently because there's been a lot of pressure on commodity prices, but it's a very formulaic business. There, the, there's not much to underwrite. It's as you said, acres and price and that's it. The other form of agriculture, which is how it was always done, which is you grow a diverse mix of products, some fruit and vegetables, some livestock, integrated farm, a few hundred acres or less so that you, you can actually be managed without huge machinery. And then you're selling direct to markets. You're selling direct to restaurants, direct to farmers markets, direct to customers. And that just falls entirely outside of that system. It's not huge. So the loan sizes aren't in the tens of millions. So it's not worth the effort of those groups. A global market price for this exact type of product or fish peppers is an heirloom pepper in Eastern Shore, Maryland. It doesn't exist in the world of agriculture. It's not listed in the, the global market price. So you basically ignored, and then those businesses are run by entrepreneurs. So you also have just the, the nuance of these farms that are strapped for time and resources that don't have time to prepare lots of financial statements and lots of information. So they're really just a terrible fit for the dominant form of financing, which is large-scale agriculture. If you don't fit that type of funding, which is unlimited money at very low cost, there's nowhere to go. There's no alternative. And that's our customer. They're stuck outside the financial system. They've used their savings. They've used credit cards. They've got an uncle or cousin to give them a bit of money. They've taken it as far as they can on very few resources. But at some point, you need equipment. You need bottling equipment. You need value-added processing equipment. You need fencing. You need drip irrigation. You need 
equipment to produce more, to sell more. And the thing that that doesn't make sense to me and the reason why Stuart restarted is the consumer demand for these products from these farmers has exploded. There's a pretty much unlimited amount of demand for these regenerative products, but these farmers are still have no no different access to funding than they would have a decade, few decades ago. So they know that if they produced more, they could sell more, but you can't produce more without a bit of capital and they get stuck in this cycle. But if they can get a boost of funding, there's huge opportunity not only to grow the products, but also create value-added products and sell at markets and sell everywhere. So it, it's one of these things, mix of government policy and, and misaligned incentives has created a gap in the market, but you're really talking about the demand in the market wants this type of product, is, is interested in this product, but the producers of these products have trouble getting access to funding to produce more of it. First few farms I funded myself to, to really establish the market, right? I mean, nobody funds regenerative farms. It's not what rates can they afford? How do you structure it? Well, you know, what do they need to do? So the first few farms I, I funded to, to learn about them, and then now on our platform, that's the point of the platform itself, that individuals can go to the platform and lend capital to these farms. We administer the loan, we structure the loan, we service it, we set up the repayment systems, tax documents, all of the regulatory administrative compliance in order to have broadly held loans. But individuals come to the platform, lend capital to the farms, they earn the interest rate on the loan that we've charged, and, and they can earn a reasonable return. Most loans are 5 to 8%. And they can directly see that tangible impact that happens from that farm, an urban farm in Detroit transforming vacant land in a food desert to fruit and vegetable production or a hemp farm in Southern Oregon growing sun-grown hemp. Just the great stories of these farmers that everybody loves and, and wants to believe in and wants to support, but they themselves need that funding. So the, the really to break that log jam of the kind of government-driven institutional banking system is you have to create an alternative and that alternative is the people themselves that want to see this type of agriculture. And there are many, and giving them the chance to actually provide their funds in support of these farms. I notice you use the phrase qualified lenders. Is it a crowdfunding kind of platform where just you find a project you're really excited about, you throw it out on Facebook and tell all your friends about it, and we all just go over and chunk in a few dollars and we get a return on that? Or is there some kind of qualification process that I I have to go through uh, in order to lend money here? It's not a uh, traditional qualification process limited for high net worth lenders. So it's broadly lent. It's people who are focused primarily on supporting regenerative agriculture and return as part of that. But it is broadly held. We do have people lending as little as $100. We also have people lending $250,000. So it's, I wouldn't say it's crowdfunding in the sense that it's everyone nest, small chipping in small amounts, but it also is that. It is customers, it is cousins, it is anybody with the connection. So mainly it's people who have connection to that farm, their customers at the farmer's market who know them, and then users of our platform who've created an account to be, become supporters of this type of agriculture, who then tend to fund different farms as they come along. Even if they're not in that state, there's, it's surprisingly non-geographic that people's interest is, they know the story of that type of farm and they want to support more of them. So it is broadly, it is something that's broadly held a, across lenders, but there are, you know, the qualification is, is your primary purpose? Are you focused on supporting the benefit of this business under their practices? And is the primary purpose that they are supporting regenerative agriculture and seeing the growth. And the reality is that's the hook for our platform. Obviously, return is important, but you're doing it because of more than that. 
And I noticed that across the United States, this is geographically dispersed, right? So I went on your site this morning and it's ghoststeward.com, right? Ghoststeward.com. And I went on your site this morning and it looks kind of similar to uh, Kickstarter or Start Some Good or Indiegogo, where there are projects and they have a description of them and, and they are in the Pacific Northwest, they're on the East Coast, they're in the Midwest or in the South, they're across the United States. And I like the variety of them. You mentioned equipment and sometimes somebody needs to put up a pole barn or they need some kind of extra piece of equipment. But sometimes it's like, I need to expand my field, right? I need to get some more property and push out here with this self-picked strawberry farm so that so that we can sell more of this to to the the public that's already clamoring for this product. So it's pretty interesting. Let me just ask you one more uh, question about the lenders. So how much of it is like a risk capital then? So let's say that I loan to somebody who's going to expand a field and suddenly we have hailstorms and we have uh, drought and we have whatever, and they're unable to repay that loan. First of all, have you experienced that? And second of all, for someone lending, they're expecting a 5 to 8% uh, return on investment. How much risk is on that? So th- there is always risk. That's our job as lenders. So People are buying participations in the loan that steward lending is issuing. So we're acting as a lender of record. We're securing the collateral. If that's land, that's a mortgage. If it's equipment, that's a UCC filing. We're staying up to date with the borrower, making sure repayments are coming through. My general view is, is the demand for their products is so great that as long as they can produce, they can sell, and we can help them get to market and help them with some of the nuances and production challenges that arise. There's always operational risk to any farm. So I would imagine a future, you may have to defer payments for a year if there was a hailstorm or something destroyed it, but the land produces every year. So at some point that they'll be able to, to make that back. We haven't had anything catastrophic yet. Generally, these are diversified farms with diversified income streams. Again, another benefit to integrated agriculture as opposed to one single crop. Uh, the mortgage loans are obviously the most secure, backed by land, equipment, securing of the business. So our view is I think there's a reasonable uh, compensation for the risk. I think it's a reasonable return that people can earn. But yes, e- each farm in and of themselves, it's our responsibility to vet them, make sure they're a high quality operator. And that's our our expertise, that this is not startup farms. This is people who are experienced farmers. They've established their business. They've established their markets. They've established their products. Their use of funds is very specific. I need a processing and bottling piece for my tomatoes. I'm hand pressing tomato juice. I sell it out at every farmer's market, but it takes me eight hours to make 20 bottles. If I had this $5,000 piece of equipment, I could make 520 minutes. You know that, And then you clearly see, okay, now they would be able to sell five times as much at a high margin. So we're looking for very specific uses of funds that are not huge loans that can help them take that next step. And that's our view of funding of Every few months, think about what the next step is that can take that business further, as opposed to these massive amounts of funding, where if you go down the wrong path, you're in trouble. So we try to keep it small and straightforward. Let me ask you about you, Dan. How'd you get here, man? Here you are running running this platform for regenerative farms and private capital and all this. So what's your story? How did you get to this? It actually is my skill set as as niche and uh, wonky as it sounds. So prior to Stewart, I was the co-founder of Fundrise, which was the first real estate crowdfunding platform. So that's where I learned the regulations around raising funding online, the technology system. 
that business was originally created because I was doing real estate development projects in Washington, D.C. and wanted to allow local residents to invest in these developments. They were kind of small, historic restorations, local tenants. Again, the type of project that that traditional financing does not quite understand or is interested in. So instead of going to traditional private equity and institutional capital, we felt, let's go to local residents, people who own homes on the block, people who know the neighborhood. They don't have to be convinced of the viability of the these this neighborhood. They're already committed to it. And so we went through an arduous multi-year process of state and federal regulatory filings to make that work, eventually launched the first project. And there was just huge demand, not only from individuals who were interested in investing in this, the local support of real estate, but also other real estate firms with the same desire to really broaden who's supporting them. So Fundrise was then spun off as an independent firm, now has over a billion dollars of AUM, over 150,000 investors. A real testament, I think, to the depth of individuals out there, the lack of opportunities they have and the ability to present new opportunities to them. So that's where I learned what it takes to build this type of platform. My connection to agriculture comes from two places. My mother's family has been farming in the Chesapeake Bay since the late 1800s. They were German immigrants in a Lutheran community, still have the home farm, diversified vegetables, eventually grew broiler chickens, which then became the big industry in that area. And then there, my grandfather passed it on and it was one of my uncles was farming it and eventually gave up due to the kind of commoditization of, of agriculture. So I've seen what commodity ag has done to communities, done to watersheds. It's really destroyed the Chesapeake Bay, which is where those farms are based and runoff and pollutants and ammonia from mega chicken farms. And so I, I always witnessed the lands planted, but the community is depressed and there's no fresh food available doesn't make sense that you're depleting your resources, but yet there's no benefit happening to the region. So that that always sat with me. What does that mean? Is that right or wrong? Obviously, I didn't know. I, I didn't grow up farming. I grew up in Washington, D.C. My mother left the farm like, like everyone did. But when I started to meet with more chefs in the real estate work I was doing, I started to talk to more who were sourcing directly from farmers. And I started to really see the different type of agriculture that exists from these smaller scale farmers the direct sourcing and the impact that can happen buying from these farms. But when I would speak to all the farmers, none of them had access to capital. And it just, you talk about James Beard award-winning chefs promoting these farmers. What better story could you have? And yet they can't get any money. And it, it felt like, okay, let's take these individuals that the consumer side of the movement that clearly is, is there and let's direct them and their capital and their resources to farms, this time in the form of debt, in the form of lending as opposed to equity for real estate. And then I read Wendell Berry, The Unsettling of America, which is, I think, the intro text to not even necessarily regenerative agriculture, but alternative agriculture of, of there being a different path than the large commoditized agriculture of the huge drawbacks and negative impacts of industrial ag and of the public policy that led to the current industrial ag. When they say, well, these small farmers can't compete, well, that's because it's tilted in favor of the big farmers. It's not because... On their own, actually, these small farmers would support themselves far better. If you removed all subsidy from agriculture, it's the big industrial farms that would really have the problem, not these diversified farms. And you realize that the system as it is today is by design, unfortunately or not, it's not necessarily the natural way of things. And there needs to be alternatives. There needs to be more resources for the people doing it differently. And I think that's well understood by many people. And what Stewart's helping to do is bring some of the, the financial infrastructure to help 
meld and accelerate some of that work because it's being done in many regions around the world, but it always runs into funding issues. That's always the big problem. It's interesting. I was looking at your uh, LinkedIn profile and obviously you got your education at the Wharton School. You got a BS in economics and then also an MBA in finance. But during that time, you were doing these short stints in like Western development, Credit Suisse and Global Environmental Fund. Were, were those like almost the intern kind of opportunities that you were doing there? And what do you think you learned from that period of time? Those were internships. So I followed the kind of classic business finance path. Personally, as pedigreed as the Wharton School is, I think they teach a very theoretical version of business and a very finance heavy version of business. And so I was more of just an entrepreneurial person, not not a finance banker or private equity type person. So I found like I found it too academic often. I thought some of those internships were very helpful. One was uh, Credit Suisse, which made me realize I never wanted to work in investment banking. It didn't take <laughs> it didn't take very long, but it's marketed. It's so shiny. Oh my God, Goldman Credit Suisse would be so amazing to work for those firms. But that's just marketing. It's a terrible quality of life. And maybe you learn a few things, but not for me. Um not I would say for independent thinkers. And then the Global Environment Fund was really transformational for me. It was a private equity firm in the Washington DC area that that invested in impact. They had a sustainable forestry fund, they had a clean tech fund. And it was the first time I really learned of the world of purpose-driven capital. Forestry was particularly fascinating to me that the physical trees themselves grow six to 8% per year in biomass and grow in value, but with age. So you literally have economic growth in, in, in the physical world, not just as this theoretical concept. And so I, I definitely think the Global Environment Fund helped me realize that there are alternative types of, of finance and funding. And then the last of those Western development, that was my family's real estate firm. So that's what I grew up in Washington, D.C., commercial real estate development. That's definitely the base knowledge and experience that led to Fundrise and Steward. Of, it's really about real estate financing effectively, kind of development financing for real estate, but now for agriculture, really what we're doing at, at Steward is applying real estate development and construction financing to agriculture. Not here today, but going to be created tomorrow. How do you create that leap and finance that gap to create something that isn't there yet today? And you said Fundrise still exists today. It's still going on. What's your involvement with Fundrise? Uh, just you were a co-founder, you own equity in it, or what's your relationship? Yeah, it's still with going, still growing. I was a co-founder and president and I co-founded it with my brother. We ran it together. I began steward and left Fundrise, but it's still growing. It began very much with a local focus on invest in your neighborhood, invest in these creative projects. Now it's grown into more of a fund management platform. So it raises money from individuals online, invest that almost private equity style in various funds online. I think it raised $100 million last month. So it's a huge business. But what always was interesting for me was not just the alternative way of raising money online, but where is it being put? What's that money doing? And having it apply to a non-traditional use. So I think that kind of alternative funding for alternative projects is always what interested me. What's the kind of, how can you use that funding to support more entrepreneurs and so support more creative things that that are should be happening but aren't necessarily happening. Let me ask you one more quick question about Stuart. I noticed that you went through the trouble to become a certified B Corp. And, and I know a little something about that world. And I know that that's not just something you just one afternoon, you you roll out of a nap and you go, oh, hey, uh, by the way, I want to be a B Corp by nighttime. And you just fill out a form and you just become one, right? So it's it's not like that. It is a lot of work, a lot of discipline and a lot of accountability. 
right? So why? What, why did you become a B Corp? And what, what do you think you got out of that? I think for us, the purpose from the beginning is to support regenerative farmers. Inherently, these are underserved, underrepresented, ignored customers. And so it, it felt like a lot of what we're doing, people, they hear sustainability, they hear regenerative. It's almost like they roll their eyes a bit. I understand it. A lot of corporations present the same. So B Corp, at least, is one of those uh, mechanisms. Nothing's perfect, but generally to show uh, intent and care and purpose. And it was actually interesting when we were, we were in the financial services kind of slot. And the questions we're asking is like, how much of your portfolio is lending to underrepresented groups? Zero to five, 10, 15, 75. And it's like, no, 100, the whole thing. And the reality is most of it is financial firms that have five or 10% of the money set aside for local community reinvestment. But for us, it's the entire organization, 100% of the capital and work supports that. So even I found within that framework, we're still as far outside as it gets, which is there there is nothing else happening at the business other than purely supporting this type of agriculture, which leads to a real purpose, which is makes it easy for us to recruit staff and retain people and keep people focused because what's better than to work on that. If you could pass along one key piece of advice to an early stage social entrepreneur, what do you think you would tell them? I always trust my instinct and just move on things that I believe in. I think both businesses that I started with Fundrise and Steward were very early concepts with the normal wisdom being like they're too complicated and what's the viability of the business, particularly with regenerative agriculture. Like, what even is that? These are small farms. They can't make any money. Obviously, it's for good, but what's the value? But I felt confident that not only is the work they're doing important, but the demand for what they're doing is growing, that there are young people I know are going into farming who didn't grow up in farms. And lots of chefs that I know are doing whatever they can to source from these farms. So it felt like it's just, this isn't in the data. The, the, the USDA data, all this data just is either not accurate or not counting this movement and just pretending it doesn't exist. But I saw it, I felt it. And, and now for the first time, I think in hundred years, you have an uptick in small farms in the most recent USDA data. So now regenerative agriculture is everywhere, but it was not five or six years ago. And so I think just trusting instinct to get started on something and not needing market studies and not all of the like over the top analysis that I think paralyzes a lot of people that if you believe there's a market there and you've, you know, have data points, those anecdotal data points can mean a lot and shouldn't be discounted because particularly in the early days of trends and shifts, all you have is anecdotal data points. The official data gathers aren't there yet. And I think I've found that very much the case in Steward. If people are looking for you online or on social media, where were they? Our company's website, gosteward.com, and then through LinkedIn or Instagram or, or Facebook would be the best place. If you were to call on us to go and do something as a result of this conversation, what would it be? I would say lend, lend money to a regenerative farm and buy more products from them. And I think when I ask people how, how many of you in an audience have lent money to a regenerative farm, it's always zero. There's maybe one person in the back who did it, or their cousin's a farm or something. But effectively, nobody has their money tied to their source of food. It, it's a very strange disconnect. And so people need to put their money to work if that's a few thousand dollars or hundreds of thousands. And then anytime you're making a purchasing decision with food, try to buy it as direct as possible from the farmer. Don't necessarily believe that the market is giving the dollars to the farmer or that the brand in Whole Foods is actually giving money to the farmer. Unless you're giving money to the farmer, it's probably less money that is getting to the farmer than you think. And a lot of them have decent websites now you can find in the region, but just try to get every dollar you're spending on 
this type of food, try to get it to the farmer. And it means a lot. And they can go a long way if they can make those direct sales. And I think part of the challenge of the growth of this regenerative agriculture movement is discerning between what's real and what's not. And the only way you know it's real is if you tangibly can see that it's going to the person and, and see how they're farming and what they're doing. All right. Well, Dan, thanks so much for being with us on Social Entrepreneur. Thank you. And thanks to you, the listener, for joining us today. You are the reason that we produce Social Entrepreneur. You can find the show notes, bonus material, and more at TonyLloyd.com. That's T-O-N-Y-L-O-Y-D.com. Well, listen, thanks so much for joining me today. And until next time, please remember to use this one short, amazing life and go make an impact. Thanks. We'll talk to you next time on Social Entrepreneur.